to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen. Welcome back to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Practice here at Lowenstein Sandler. And in today's episode, we're going to pick up with our discussion about how to engage in a mediation that leads to a successful outcome. And today, I'm very pleased to have with me three guests. I've got my senior counsel, Joe Seka from Lowenstein Sandler, to give us the policyholder's perspective on this. And I'm very pleased to welcome Adina Edwards from Star Insurance Company, who will share insurance company's views. And we've got Larry Pollock from JAMS ADR who will give us the mediator's perspective on how to participate in this successfully. So, Adina, welcome and happy to have you today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. I am just making sure that my statements are made on behalf of myself and my personal views. And I wanted to make sure that everyone's aware that they are not being made on behalf of STAR or any STAR-related companies, but solely on my own behalf. Really appreciate that. And, and Larry, thank you for joining us as well today. Appreciate Thanks so that. much for having me, Linda. All right. And Joe, you're back to keep us on the straight and narrow on the policyholder side. So that's great. So why don't we just jump right in? And I'll start by asking Larry, what is the right time to mediate a dispute? And, and I'm sure you've never had experience with parties showing up before it's the right time. So give us some insight on when, when's the right time to do this, start this process. Well, I must say that as an advocate, and I was a a trial lawyer for 28 years, I was a big fan of early mediations because I felt that it was very helpful for my clients to have the view of somebody who didn't have any skin in the game and to get some free information because once you get into litigation, you're constrained by the rules as to what you can and cannot get. So my advice to them and my feeling now is that any time is a good time for a mediation. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's a process that you have to work through. And it's always good to start it, even if you don't succeed at the, the outset. As the mediator, one of the first questions that I ask is, why are you here? And the good answer is because we want to be here, no matter what time in, in, the, in the sequencing of a case it is. What's a more difficult answer for me is because somebody told us to come here or some other semblance of that, it makes my job very difficult because there's no ownership of of the process. And so to answer your question simply, Linda, any time is a good time and no time is a good time not to come. So Dina, in in your experience, is there a particular point in the life cycle of a case that works better? Are you seeing what Larry is seeing on the insurance company side that, hey, if the iron's hot at the front end, let's go and get it done? I would actually 100% agree with Larry, actually. The earlier, the better. In our view, we're spending money if we keep going. Discovery costs a lot of money. The earlier we go and mediate, the less money we spend. And you know, coverage money is out of our pocket. It's not you know, the insurance money. It's our money. It's not part of reserves from the policy. It's our own company reserves. It's separate entirely. So we really want to mediate as soon as possible. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where you want to mediate over the life of a claim. So like 
hey, early on you had a mediation, didn't work out so well, but you got some information, you have a rapport now. Maybe you had a really good mediator that you really liked and you want to go back to that mediator over the course of the litigation as things develop, as you learn more, and maybe start a dialogue and keep that dialogue going. By keeping that dialogue and keeping that rapport, you have a better likelihood of settling at some point. So we're at the very beginning of the mediation. Larry, what are some of the obstacles that you typically see right at the very beginning? One, you, I think you already alluded to, which is that people are not coming at their free will. They, a judge has ordered them to be in front of you. But what are some of the other obstacles that you commonly see at the beginning of the day of a mediation? Well, I wouldn't call them obstacles. I would call them difficulties. And you can put them into two broad categories. One is the substance, that there are distinct differences of views on the issues that are in dispute. And the second is the people. There are many instances where the mediator has to kind of figure out why there is people are at loggerheads. And sometimes it's because somebody just doesn't like somebody else. Sometimes it's because someone has dug in and felt strongly about a position and they may be right or they may be wrong. Another reason is simply because something has gone off track and it's the mediator's job to try to figure out what what that is. I typically, before mediation, have individual separate telephone calls with each side, kind of an informal separate session, if you will. One of the things I try to figure out is what's wrong. Is this purely a substantive issue that people need to perhaps look at a different way? Or is it something else? And I try to poke around and figure that out before we get to the mediation. And so with that information, one creates their job of how to go about the case. Every case is different. And you try to to map out your schema, your way of dealing with it, whether it's substance, the people, or both. Nina, how about you? What's, What's the number one challenge for you going into the mediation typically? Assessing whether or not we have the appropriate information to make a proper settlement analysis and to come into it with the proper reserves necessary to settle the case. If we don't have enough information in advance to reserve our file properly, it's just going to be a waste of mediation. That's a nice way, Adina, of you saying our clients don't give you the damages. Sometimes it has nothing to do with our clients. Sometimes it's you know, the information wasn't even provided to them. Joe, how do, how do we deal with on the policyholder side with the, the, the number one obstacle of our clients not believing Adina's client is coming in good faith? I'd say one of the biggest obstacles in a lot of mediations is in coverage disputes is that it's an all or nothing game where one side's interpretation is going to rule the day or it's not. And so it makes it hard to bridge that gap when both sides are coming at it with completely different interpretations. And that's where it takes someone skilled like Larry to kind of make the other side see the holes in the other's arguments. Yeah. So Larry, that's something I wanted to probe a little bit, you know, that we all, all of us uh, participating in today's episode knows there's quite a bit of a dance to mediation. There's a time to knock heads over that legal dispute that Joe just alluded to. And then there comes a time when it's time to talk Turkey. So how do you as the mediator orchestrate that dance beautifully so that we can get to yes at the end of the day? Well, I do it in two phases. I think that you really can't effectively mediate a case without knowing 
it as deeply as you can. And so I put a lot of time into studying the materials provided to me prior to the mediation. And from those materials, I develop a series of points. They're my points. They're never rocket science, but they're designed to develop a point counterpoint between the parties to the mediation. I spend the first part of the mediation developing that point counterpoint and have everything come from the parties. I take careful notes and I listen and convey the information from each of the parties, not from me. I then subtly move from the facilitative stage to the evaluative stage, but never with an anvil, usually with, you know, they may have something here. And on this part, you're strong. And on this part, you're weak. And maybe it would help to look at it this way or that way. And maybe we can ask this question to the other side. It's kind of funny when I was practicing, I, my mediator of choice used to say, well, we have a problem with this. And I said, I would say to him, wait a minute, who's we? No, I've adopted that because, you know, people need a sense and an ability to trust the mediator. And from that trust develops the ability to perhaps see things a little differently. What about you, Dina? What, what are the carriers looking for? Do, do you agree with what Larry just said? Or are you, is your group coming in wanting to just cut right to the chase and see if a business resolution can be negotiated here today? So it's a little bit of both. It's sort of a hybrid. So the, the first thing we look for is somebody to actually read the papers, understand what took place. And we come in, we cut to the chase. So we don't need to like, you know, have everybody present their case. They did it in the brief. Person coming in, you know, prepared to mediate that case. We can cut right to the chase when we get there. Otherwise, you tend to spend half the day having everybody present, make their clients more entrenched in their position, and you never get to where you want because everybody's busy arguing their position. You come in that day, you get come in ready to settle, and the mediator is prepared by reading the papers. You don't need to get entrenched in your position and hear it and suddenly go, oh, yeah, I really like my case. Forget it. I'm not settling. I totally agree. It is the very rare instance that I allow for independent oral presentations because I find that they do, as Dina mentioned, entrench the parties. And I'm not a control freak, but you do lose control if somebody says something that will take you far off the reservation and it's three o'clock before you have to put, you're able to put everything back together again. Yeah, I think it's a careful balance that has to be done though, because Joe and I can speak for outside counsel you want to come and show your client that you're ready to be a zealous advocate. So, you know, Larry's had to put me back in my corner a few times because part of this dance is showing that you're not afraid to go back to court or, and to go litigate this. And so I think a little bit of that posturing, frankly, has to happen during the day. I agree. Opening statements are not necessarily the way, but Larry has to put up with a little posturing in both rooms, I think, don't you think? So I have a really funny anecdote, actually, in that regard. It was this mediator that I used to be in front of periodically, and he wanted everybody to present because he had a poppy seed bagel he used to eat in the very beginning of every session. He started like 8.30 in the morning, but he needed to start then so he could eat his whole poppy seed bagel and proceed to pick all the seeds out of his teeth. Once that was done, then he was ready to do everything, but he wanted people to present so he could eat his bagel and pick his teeth. <laughs> so you in, you instituted a no bagel rule for all future mediations, right? Yeah. So I stopped um, using them because it was a waste of time. All right. So Joe, let me throw it over to you. We, we've talked a little bit about the, the mediation briefs and we touched on this in our last episode. What's the right approach for that mediation brief that you're going to give to Larry and to, and maybe to Adina 
to look at. Are, are, we, are we staying in summary judgment mode or are we going to express a little bit more commerciality? I'll make up a word in what we're communicating in the written brief. I think it's a blend of the two. I think you need to have all the arguments that you're going to make in summary judgment in the brief to the extent that you think they're going to be persuasive to the other side, but I don't think you need to be expounding on 12 different cases. I think you need to show the mediator the two or three most significant cases that he or she needs to know about so he can be prepared to discuss them with the other side. And Dina, do you agree? I want to ask two parts to that one. Do you agree that that's the approach you want your counsel taking in the brief they're submitting to the mediator? And how does it land to your eyes when you're getting essentially the summary judgment brief again versus something that's a little, a little more collaborative in tone, I'll call it. So I, I actually don't like to read like a summary judgment brief. I like it to tell a story because that's really what the mediator wants to understand, the big picture. They don't want to hear your summary judgment brief. You could attach the brief and have them read it if you want. You can summarize it by a paragraph or two, maybe cite some key cases, but really the key is to, to tell the story, to tell where you got your position from and why and what the basis is. And, you know, to kind of give some kind of insight into why you feel the way you do. What's to you, Larry? Are we, are we giving you summary judgment? And, and, and for you, I want to add on the question of what is the importance of the side letters that, that parties sometimes use to, to get a little more real with you before they're in the room? I see all different types of written submissions, and I really don't favor any one of them. I, I take whatever information I can get, and I do my own cut. And, and as I said, I, I create the list of points that I'm going to go over with each side. And it's designed towards improving commercial negotiation. And I go over the points. So I will make the judgments as to how the case can get settled, not how, who wins or loses, but how the case could get settled when I read the written submissions. And if they're of an advocacy nature, I take that into account. If they're a little bit more nuanced, I take that into account. But I develop the points with a view towards creating what the dialogue's going to be in our mediation session. If the parties agree to exchange the written submissions, then I invite what I call the private option, which is at any time before the mediation, either something send me something that you've just mentioned, Linda, kind of from my eyes only. And that's a little bit more stark. It could take the form of a reply brief. It could be what I call the ice cream sundae approach, where people share the plain vanilla stuff and the sugary, goopy stuff they send to me. I give people the option of being very commercial in their private submissions. Virtually nobody does that. They wait for the meeting. <laughs> And then the fourth option is that you don't submit anything separately. You stand on your original brief. And I take it from there. And I'm not fussed one way or the other, whether I get a pure advocacy brief or I get something that's more commercial in nature. I take it as it is. I could tell right away what it is. And I adapt my approach based upon what I'm reading. All right. Well, that's great. We have so much more to cover that I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this session, we're going to continue. Larry and Adina have graciously agreed to join Joe and I again to continue this discussion in a future episode. So we'll see you next time. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. 
Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.